Welcome to the Nightly Five podcast with Ben O'Shea. Welcome to the Nightly Five. On tonight's show, exclusive new polling numbers ahead of the Dunkley by-election, which is also a good time to give you a report card on the Albanese Cabinet's first two years, as scored by Labor insiders, who certainly don't hold back. Now, one thing that is being held back, though, is the name of the so-called traitor MP who sold Australia out to an international spy ring. We'll bring you the latest on that. And later in the show, we'll ask if you're addicted to shopping on Timu. Don't worry, you're probably not alone. And we'll remember American comedy legend Richard Lewis, dead at 76. Circling back to our lead story, this weekend's by-election in Dunkley. I think the Prime Minister's looked at the polling, as I have, in relation to Dunkley, and I think he's quite shocked by what he's found. Let's call it and be honest about the Prime Minister's motivations here. That's Opposition Leader Peter Dutton speaking last month about the Dunkley by-election. And boy, has a lot happened since then. Joining me now to unpack exclusive new polling numbers you can find in the Nightly Tonight is its Editor-in-Chief, Anthony DeSegley. Anthony, tell us, this by-election in Dunkley on the surface is about a Liberal candidate versus a Labor candidate, Nathan Conroy versus Jody Bellier. So much more than that. Oh, so much more than that. I'm surprised you even know their names. I was just talking to the newsroom and so many people, I reckon, across Australia don't even know who the candidates are. But what they do know is that it's a Elbow versus Dutton by-election. And the reason I'm holding my phone is I do have the polling hot off the presses um, that we've got in tonight's edition. And, and it is remarkable. I mean, look, Labor's going to win. Um, they're way up on the primary vote in terms of they're at 34%, Libs are at 24%, the Greens are at 13 so you'd think a two-party preferred is going to go Labor's way. But the interesting stuff is when you actually start talking to voters about why they're voting um, Labor's way. And the two ones that really stand out is when we ask them about, and this is painted dog polling, I should say, but when we ask them about the economy... Um, it's 60-40 in Elbow's favour. Now, Elbow's favour? Now, when a Labor leader is, lead, is ahead of a Liberal leader on the economy, Peter Dunn's got real trouble. And obviously that's, a, that's the, um, the outcome of the stage three tax cuts, right? Um, yeah, well, that's the thing, right? Like, it was widely seen as a pretty cynical attempt by Elbow to win the Dunkley by-election. And based on these polling numbers, looks like it's worked. Yeah, it has looked like this worked. And, and I think it was a day ago or two days ago, all these days are starting to blur together for me. But um, Andrew Carswell, who was obviously um, formerly very high up in Scott Morrison's office, wrote an exceptional opinion piece for The Nightly, talking about one of Peter Dutton's problems at the moment is he's talking about borders when he should be talking about cost of living. Um, and what, another remarkable stat from our survey is that when asked about border protection, who was better, Elbow or Dutton, it's 49-51 in Dutton's favour. But once again, I mean, that's, that's a 49. Tiny margin. Yeah. I mean, we're talking a two-point difference for Peter Dutton on borders when it's the thing he's knowing about. Like, the one thing you can say about Peter Dutton is he can manage our borders and he's only just beating Elbow. And especially with this polling done in the in the wake of, a, you know, sort of a week or two removed from uh, boats of asylum seekers landing on our shores and, and all of the mileage uh, that the coalition potentially got out of that doesn't seem to have materialised here. And now, Victoria is a pretty safe Labor stronghold, and it has been for a long time. Uh, how much does that play into these polling results, do you think? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Victoria is a Labor stronghold. You're right. I mean, Dan Andrews you know, managed to survive so many scandals because of that. Um, but at the end of the day, I think the absolute clear thing, you go to the polls, the number one issue, no matter what anyone says, is always your hip pocket. And right now, Elbow is beating Dutton 
on the hip pocket, and that doesn't bode well for for the Libs at the federal election. They need to do something. They need a circuit changer. Yeah, well, these midterm by-elections are fascinating. They can often be a referendum on the government's performance. Don't often change hands necessarily, but a swing one way or another can be an endorsement or an indictment. Uh, Aston didn't go so well for the Liberals last year. That was a pretty unique situation. What sort of swing do you think you'll see here in Dunkley? Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned swing. And, and look, I'll be honest, I spoke to a very high-up Labor cabinet minister only about two hours ago federal cabinet minister and you know what they said to me who cares if we win we win that's all anyone cares about like people like you and i we talk (laughs) swings the public doesn't the public's going to see elbows celebrating a win and that's all that's going to matter yeah and i think at the moment he'll certainly take that and we'll be all watching very closely indeed anthony can we get you to stick around a bit longer of course richard miles will be deputy prime minister and the minister for defense penny wong will be the senate leader and the Minister for Foreign Affairs. Uh, Don Farrell uh, will be the Deputy Senate Leader, the Minister for Trade and Tourism, and the Special Minister of State. Uh, Dr Jim Chalmers will be the Treasurer. Senator Katie Gallagher will be the Minister for Finance, the Minister for the Public Service, and the Minister for Women. Tony Burke will be the Leader of the House, as well as being Minister for Employment and Workplace Relations and Minister for the Arts. That was PM Anthony Albanese in 2022 announcing his cabinet. It went on for a bit longer than that. Uh, Two years later, though, through thick and thin, Albo has remained loyal to his ministry, but was it the right move? Still with me in the studio is Knightley Editor-in-Chief Anthony DeSegli. Now, in the fourth instalment of Christopher Dawes' expose examination of Anthony Albanese's first two years in government, today he focused on his cabinet. What did we learn from it? Yeah, like true um, journalistic style, we left the best for last. And, I mean, this is probably the most gossipy, um, you know, bitchy kind of piece in the terms of this is Labor insiders, Labor politicians, Labor cabinet ministers probably speaking about themselves and rating themselves. And so, you know, you get a bunch of politicians, ask them how they feel about their peers, and and it's always very interesting stuff. And, look, I I won't... take too long because the best thing to do is to read it because every word is 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 brilliant but here's some of the summaries on some of the cabinet ministers so for richard miles who's obviously the defense minister the summary is lovely bloke hard-working loyal deputy crap defense minister um the piece on tanya plibersek the people's princess albanese has never forgiven her for backing in the leadership of bill shorten and has sent her to the political equivalent of siberia and then on, um, on Chris Bowen, a former immigration minister, now a climate change minister. Once it was stopped the boats, now it's stopped the SUVs. What a nightmare. <laughs> well, they're fascinating little snapshots of uh, Albanese's cabinet. But in the broader piece, which really delves into forensic detail into what they all think of each other, like I think the one thing that emerges for me is the idea that Albo thinks that um, stability or the illusion of stability is more important than maybe making change changes and replacing people who aren't performing well. Do you think that's going to come back and bite Albo? Yeah, look, it's interesting. I think getting your cabinet right is such a fundamental piece of politics, um, and it always has been. And, you know, so it, it can go kind of two ways. Sometimes when you have a lot of great backbenchers, it becomes a problem because they're desperate, you know, they're ambitious and they're desperate to get into the cabinet. Um, and the, another problem you have is when there's too many people sticking around. Um, so, look, I, I think he will need to do a reset. Um, 
the question for him is he has so many high-profile factional leaders in his cabinet it becomes very hard to, to shift the deck chairs, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. And, and what does this article tell us about the the workings of the cabinet? Because you, you mentioned Tanya Plebisek, who had been sidelined. She still seems, despite all of it, to be singing from the same hymn book. Is there unity? Is that just an illusion? Oh, I think there's never unity in a cabinet, definitely. And, and in a cabinet that has people who see themselves as a prime minister... And, you know, whether that's Bill Shorten, who's still upset that he lost, um, or whether that's Jim Chalmers, who definitely sees himself as a future leader, or whether that's Tanya Plibersek, who sees herself. And, you know, there's a lot of rumblings around about Tony Burke and how he sees himself as a future prime minister too. Um, So all of that's really interesting. I mean, the best thing to do, like I said, is sit down, read the four-part series, because it is the most fascinating and insightful piece inside the Albanese government um, since he took took on the, um, the position two years ago. And comprehensive. I think that's a word that describes it as well. And you can read the full series by Christopher Dorr on thenightly.com.au. Editor-in-Chief Anthony DeSegli, thanks for joining me on The Nightly Five. Thanks, Ben. It's a very serious statement, a very serious statement uh, to say, and it's not an allegation, it's a statement of fact that a politician serve the interests of a foreign nation against the interests of Australia. And Mr Burgess has to now name that politician. Otherwise, everyone who has ever served in politics is impugned. It's as simple as that. That's former Federal Treasurer Joe Hockey, and he's certainly making it clear where he stands on the idea that an Australian MP sold out to a foreign regime. This explosive allegation was first aired by ASIO Director-General Mike Burgess in a speech on Wednesday. The ASIO boss outlined the prolific activities of a spy network he labelled the A-Team, but he didn't name the former politician or country involved. Not sure why Burgess ever thought he could drop that little tidbit and not give us closure on that anecdote, but the calls to reveal the politician in question have been getting louder ever since. Opposition leader Peter Dutton backed the call for more identifying information to be released, making the point, like hockey, that Burgess's comments besmirch all former MPs. The claim at the centre of all this is that this former politician was going to introduce a Prime Minister's family member to the spies, but the plot apparently did not go ahead. The person was not active anymore and had been neutralised, according to Burgess. So the person might be neutralised, but the only way this controversy will be is if the public gets more information. Burgess might be in the business of secrets, but this moment calls for transparency. I just heard some cattle over there. It's okay. I'm just, I'm excited. I'm just a little paranoid tonight. I, ha- I haven't performed in a couple of months and, uh, and yet, hey, I'm paranoid about everything in my life. Even at home, I, on my stationary bike, I have a rear view mirror, which I'm not thrilled about. <laughs> Richard Lewis was a comedian's comedian and over five decades made a living making people laugh about his own neuroses. The American comic has died after a battle with Parkinson's disease at age 76. Here to help us remember a legend is arts and culture editor of The Nightly, Wenley Ma. Wenley, what's your memory of Richard Lewis? Like many people, I discovered Richard Lewis on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Um, I have some memory of him uh, in Robin Hood Men in Tights from when I was a kid because uh, he has this really familiar, recognisable face. So I think even fans who maybe didn't know his name will definitely recognise his face. But definitely it's a Curb Your Enthusiasm thing for me. He was he and Larry David, who were actually born in the same hospital just three days apart, like they had such a natural energy that just had this stream of consciousness 
this sort of way of riffing with each other. And I think that kind of took the edge of um, Larry David's character on screen, who is, you know, intentionally unlikable because you kind of think if someone like Richard can really like Larry, then there must be something redeemable to Larry. But I think Richard, more than anyone else, in the comedy industry, like he was so revered for being bracingly honest and always self-deprecating. You know, he had this razor sharp wit, but he mostly used it to turn on himself, which I think makes him really, really relatable. Like, you know, he he talked a lot about his alcoholism, about being depressed, about not being loved by his mother. And uh, he had the nickname Prince of Pain for a reason. But at the same time, it was never like very you know, anguished. He just did it in a way that felt like that he was someone being open and vulnerable without being really morose or maudlin about it. And I think that's a really fine line to walk. Yeah, and I my recollections of Richard Lewis, he was always clad in all black. He had this sort of shock of black hair like a rock star strutting around on stage like he was one of the Ramones or something like that. And he was he was really sort of the, the archetypal Jewish comedian who would talk about their flaws, talk about their mother, and do it in, as you say, such a self-deprecating way that I think won him so many fans and so much respect within the industry. Now, what do we know about the circumstances around his death? Yeah, so he died of a heart attack uh, that was released by his family in the statement. And uh, he apparently did die peacefully in bed. So I think that's, you know, a great comfort to all those that loved him. And of course, today, the tributes have been pouring from comedians who've admired him deeply, including Ben Stiller and obviously Larry David. Um, But I think what really struck me about Richard Lewis as well is, It's not just that he was someone who took comedy further, but he was just such a student of comedy as well. He spoke endlessly about his admiration for people like Mel Brooks, for Buster Keaton, uh, one of my personal favorites. And, you know, he befriended Buster Keaton's widow years after Keaton's death. And he, you know, always talked about how Keaton was one of his heroes. And you can kind of see that, that he understood the fundamentals, the craft of comedy, and I think that is why he is so admired. Yeah, absolutely. And now we'll listen to some of Richard Lewis talking to Larry David on Curb Your Enthusiasm, some of that chemistry that you spoke about, Wenley. Let's take a listen. Let me tell you something. This is a woman who knows seven languages. She's very sweet. I'm taking the lead. The movie's about to start. Look at me. Can you look at me? Can you respect me? I drove down in rush hour. Can you please look at me? And and those seats are like this. She she tried. And you went, do you mind? Can't you move? And then here's here's the coup de grace. You look at her breasts. It's just hilarious. <laughs> so many amazing interactions on that show. And Richard Lewis kind of ended up being the sort of the moral compass uh, for Larry on so many occasions. Uh, it's just wonderful. One of the many fantastic memories we have of Richard Lewis. And we're lucky that we have a show like Curb Your Enthusiasm to go back and watch him in action for a whole new generation. Wenley Ma, Arts and Culture Editor at The Nightly. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. the Temu app and shop like a billionaire. Whether you pronounce it Temu or Timu, that was the company's Super Bowl ad this year. FYI, each 30-second slot cost nearly $11 million. Timu had five of them. JP Morgan Chase reckons the company will spend $4.6 billion on marketing this year. As a result of that spend, last year Timu was the most downloaded app in Australia, America, 
Britain, France and Germany. So how is this company rising through the ranks so fast and are we, the consumers, ready for it? Some experts like Dr Shasha Wang from the Queensland University of Technology School of Advertising, Marketing and Public Relations say Timu's success goes beyond its vast array of products and low prices. Dr Wang points to the gamified shopping experience and sales promotion tactics which make customers think they have to act fast to secure the best deal. Now, none of these tactics are new, but Timu has found a way to combine them all under the motto shop like a billionaire and it's proving addictive in a way that we haven't really seen from online shopping in the past. So if you're already hooked, you're definitely not the only one. And you don't want to miss the fascinating article about the rise of Timu and the threat it poses to existing online retail giants like Amazon on the nightly.com.au right now. And that, folks, is today's show. We'll join you again tomorrow. The Nightly Five podcast is brought to you by Seven West Media. For all these stories and more, head to thenightly.com.au, helping you get in front of tomorrow.